Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. It is possible to go thus far and yet be, but almost a Christian. I learn not only from the oracles of God, but also from the sure testimony of experience. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're listening to a sermon by John Wesley. It was preached in Oxford in 1741. It's titled, The Almost Christian. This is not the first sermon that we've ever had called The Almost Christian. By the way, Joel, I don't know if you remember, but George Whitfield uh, preached a sermon also called The Almost Christian. It was one of our, it was our very first, I think, it's George a good Whitfield title, man. episode. It is a good title. And I can't help but since John Wesley and George Whitfield knew each other, um, I would say someone more versed in history on sermons should look up and see if they were answering each other. But that actually probably is our job. So we'll say just, we they, don't know. They were just hanging out in the same <laughs> office and... And, and John yeah. Wesley looked over and and just saw the you know like paperwork and there the title of the sermon over there and he's like yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good, pretty that's good. A good title People like yeah, that. I'm use that yeah. I will say the almost Christian was a really big topic in their era of people thinking they're Christians walking through life as Christians. I, John Wesley and George Whitfield both said basically they had that experience, so that probably played into it. But Joel, before we get started on that, I gotta say, Joel, we we have to talk to our audience. We have to talk to you, who's listening right now. Uh, I've in the last week we have received multiples of messages from people telling us that they love my wife's show, Mars Missionaries, yeah, and Mars I, I love missionaries. my wife's show. Big fan of Mars and Missionary. We shouted them out on a very recent episode, but but, but I gotta say, um, around the kitchen table for me, <laughs> there's some gloating going down. Uh, there's a little bit of wow, everyone's loving my show. What's that show you run again? Uh, Revive Tinkering or something like that. Revive So that I can remind my wife, I have listeners too. (laughs) Uh, If you would like to send us a little something or maybe give us a little shout out. Help help me be able to stand with pride as a man in my home. Yeah, no, I can see that being uh, being that. We're not trying to discourage martyrs and missionaries fans. We're just trying to encourage the other, the Revive Thought people. You think everything's fine, but at home, you know, I'm just saying we got to help me out here. Just help me out. All right. Uh, let's jump into this episode with John Wesley. This episode is a little bit special. It was sent to us by Jason Stanley. He has a very passionate um, love for John Wesley. He actually recorded this on his own and sent it to us. Uh, we want you to hear his sermon. He wanted to be able to come on the episode and kind of describe some of his thoughts about John Wesley. He has a, a pretty good background to explain some very important aspects of John Wesley to us, but it wasn't going to work out very well with our schedules on our side. So I asked him if he could send us a recording, just a couple minutes of some important aspects of John Wesley that he could emphasize. After the sermon, you can listen for that, his his kind of tidbits and some things he didn't want you to miss as you listen to this. So I think it'll be very encouraging for you to hear that. We have a previous episode on John Wesley. So if you want to go back to the basics, definitely go and check that one out. It's an episode where we actually feature him preaching a sermon. It was actually the funeral sermon for George Whitfield, George Whitfield and John Wesley. And of course, his brother, Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley, were all best buds in college, and they had a type of club, if you will, where they strove to dedicate all their time to uh, to seeking the Lord and to walking with the Lord. Uh, and that friendship kind of walked with them throughout their life, and uh, they would have various agreements and disagreements, but um, it's kind of a neat pocket of church history there. John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley were two of 19 
children. One, nine, 19 children born to one mother. I can't imagine. <laughs> uh, in the early 1700s. So these, these weren't like step-siblings. Like this was one father and mother that had 19 children, which I didn't know was physically possible. But it, it's, here we have it's it. a lot of children. I don't want to, I mean, good for West, John Wesley and Charles Wesley's parents on the one hand, but also... Uh, I know everyone's always talks about how they had bigger families back then, but even back then, that was that was a large family. There's no way you could keep tra- track of 19 kids. There's no way. There's no way. you go you go out to the store or you go uh, go out to church. Is physically impossible to keep. Well, track and that's of kind of kids. what we see happen here in a minute. So, <laughs> I guess I guess you know by the time they're not all children age. You know, you got some older no. ones there that can help wrangle. Charles and John uh, both went through this kind of realization when they were in college that they, they they discovered what in their eyes was a conviction that they were not fully following God or in their words, they would say they had not been fully converted yet. And, you know, that kind of rings uh, to the title of the sermon to what Troy was saying at the top of the show. That was kind of this era. This, there was this mindset of like, yeah, there's a lot of people that are faking being Christians are you really Christians? Is this is this really real to you? Th- this realization and this conviction for them was very real to them, and it is the catalyst for a lot of the work that they do, and it's the catalyst that you know would eventually see them going to fuel giant revivals all around the colonies and and across England uh, and form a new movement. At the time, it, it's it's the birth of the Methodist movement. Now, Joel has given you a short summary. Um, We've talked about John Wesley in multiple episodes before, so didn't want to dig into it as much as we have. We highly encourage you to go check out those John Wesley and the George Whitfield episodes because they really interact with each other. However, I want to add something new I learned during research for this episode, uh, and that was a fire. Now, you may know the John Wesley story very well, but this was news to me. Fire has a way of adding drama to a story, but also has a way of adding trauma to a person who lives through it. I recently finished a script for a deep dive history on a fire, and it really just kind of made me think about how powerful and wild and the impact fire can have on, I mean, in this case, uh, a nation in history, and how these childhood events can also just play a lasting impact on people's lives. We did a very early episode on A.B. Simpson, who got lost as a kid in the woods during a terrible storm. Somehow the water in that storm ended up washing mud off these dead bodies. He was left out there, and he had psychosis on his like for the rest of his life because of that traumatic instance he went through and john wesley goes through a pretty traumatic similar ish story where at the age of five uh, his family is woken up to people yelling the word fire 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 and his father opens the door they're living in like a church house lodging not quite an apartment but kind of similar ish style uh run by the church and they their the whole house is filled with smoke Everyone begins racing around, running, grabbing children. And the maid they have that kind of helps them out is grabbing all the kids, grabs Charles Wesley and the future, you know, him writer that he is. But while they're getting everyone out, like you said, Joel, uh, they missed one. Little John is sleeping in his bed and they didn't grab him completely unaware of the danger he was in. And I don't think it was them being neglectful. You have eight kids. It's the middle of the night. Everyone's grabbing people, screaming and getting out the door. I think poor John just got missed in all of it. Later, when John is recounting this, he says when he woke up, he first thought it was morning because it was so bright, but that was actually the fire all around him. And he cried out for help, and his father tried to run up the stairs, but he was unable to reach him because the stairs had already burnt out and and crumbled under the flames. The account goes on uh, to talk about how his father feared that his son couldn't be saved and knelt down, and his father said he gave his son to God, just, just kind of 
surrendering hope that he, he accepted that he was gone at that point. And John tried to climb out of the room, trying to find a way out, but the flames were too intense. They were too hot for him to, to get anywhere. He climbed up onto the top of a bookshelf that was in his room, and from the outside through a window, people could see him moving up there, so they knew that he was still conscious, and they were looking for a ladder to get up to that second floor, and they couldn't find a ladder, and they ended up forming kind of like a human chain of people, you know, people sitting and standing on other people's sh shoulders, and they were able to reach the window, and John was able to escape through the window into the onlookers that were helping get him out of, out of the room, and the report said that soon after he was free from the room, the roof uh, began to collapse into that room he was just in, so pretty intense stuff. Uh, that that John experienced here as a young five-year-old. And when his father saw that John and his family all survived, all made it out, he called everyone together and uh, they fell to their knees. His father said that he was rich because uh, he had his children and his family. Poor monetarily, all of his belongings are gone. But in his eyes, he was the richest man about because uh, he had his family with him. He quoted Zachariah saying that John was a, quote, brand plucked from the fire. Another interesting aspect before we leave the rectory was that they believed it was haunted by a ghost. I've actually seen this before. Uh, it's run into it a couple times in John Wesley's story. They never denied it. John and Charles always, to the end of their days, said that in that old church lodging building that was very, very old, there was an old ghost called old that they called Old Jeffrey who had moved stuff around on them and that they believed it was haunted. Uh, this, is one, this is the first account in all over by Thoughts History of a ghost. We have a curse. There was a Soren Kierkegaard thought he was under a curse for most of his life. Um, but this first one we had of a ghost. I thought that was kind of interesting and just out there. But, you know, back to the fire. Imagine the effect that has on you at such a tender young age of five, that close. I mean, not, oh, wow, I almost died. You know, I almost fell for a second. We're talking like he was very traumatically running from these flames, trying to get help, thinking there's no chance that he's going to escape and then just barely does and you know sees with his own eyes the roof fall in behind him that fear of death probably explains uh some of the passionate desperation that we see john wesley in his later years uh, have to follow god and scripture and be right with god he knew very well what it meant to be afraid for your life and it seemed to be ingrained to him this desperation to be close to god john wesley and his brother charles uh, went hand in hand throughout a lot of their life you know they, they were raised together they uh, changed the world together. They both had conversion experiences within three days of each other independently. Uh, they both were founders of this Methodist movement. They both wrote hymns. John Wesley uh, actually published hymns before Charles, but Charles definitely went on uh, for that that claim to fame. His, his hymns are much more recognizable in today's day and age. Hymns like... And Can It Be, Hark the Herald Angel Sings, and Oh Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. That, that, those might just be a few that you might recognize. But just as Whitfield and John Wesley had a falling out, you may not know, but John Wesley and his brother Charles actually had a bit of a falling out in their later years as well. They disagreed mainly over some issues theologically, but even more so to some degree on how to organize the church. Charles was a preacher too, but he was skeptical of the large crowds coming to hear John and uh, jo George Whitfield preaching outdoors. He saw this as a problem. He didn't really like the idea of outdoor preaching to begin with, uh, but he really disliked John's solution to the problem. See, John believed that there were too many people not getting spiritually fed, so he wanted to start sending lay preachers to speak God's words to the masses. He said he had seen excellent examples of non-clergy, non-ordained ministers 
preaching to the people and they could do it just as effectively as anybody. But Charles saw this as something that was not supposed to be done. He thought it was a bad idea of John's. Up until this point in history, pretty much every preacher that you know of was ordained by somebody. Charles began to really be against the idea of lay preachers. John's solution was to make Charles the guy in charge of examining and testing the preachers to see if they were up to snuff. So kind of like, oh, you don't you don't think they'll do a good job? Well, you can be in charge of uh, giving them the test, basically. Yeah, and this went about as well as you would imagine it going. Uh, it, I, I, do, I find this disagreement interesting because I do think it's a very, I don't know, contemporary issue. Like you could see this exact thing happening within a church in today's day and age. It was happening here, you know, 300 years ago. There's this account where John sent uh, this tailor to Charles um, because this tailor wanted to preach and John thought he could preach. And so he went to, to Charles to see the test. And Charles was so rigorous and determined to not see him preach that he said, quote, I am determined to make him a tailor again, which is pretty mean, pretty mean, Charles. That's, that's pretty cold. John thought there needed to be more preachers to meet the needs of all the new churches that were being planted. And Charles believed that we needed to purge everyone who was not up to the high standards set for leaders in the church. And Charles would try to rally his friends to try to uh, hint to John, to try to convey to John not to use lay preachers. And that bothered John. And But on the other side, John was in control of uh, their finances, their allowance. And that bothered Charles that he had kind of the financial final say on a lot of decisions. So you can see the building blocks were there for disagreements and arguments to abound again with John wanting to train more lay people to become preachers and Charles having a more strict view on, on who should become preachers. But the need is there for preachers. So what do you do? What seemed to be one of the final straws in their fighting was the war with America. At the same time, in the 1700s, uh, you know, America declares independence 1776, and specifically the Treaty of 1783, where America and Britain make peace, but officially are not the same country anymore. Since America was no longer under England, the Church of England, by that virtue, because John and West, John and Charles had some disagreements on whether the Methodists were under the Church of England, uh, they needed someone to ordain their ministers. John Wesley, without telling Charles, sent people to ordain them in America kind of on his own. Charles was hurt and mad about this. And as a hymn writer and a poet, he wrote a poem in response to John, which went like this. So easily are bishops made by man's or woman's whim. Wesley, his hands on Coke hath laid. Coke was the name of one of the guys he sent. But who laid hands on him? So when you're getting to a place where you're writing like uh, rap poems back and forth at each other, you know you've gotten some problems between the two of you. Over time, the two kind of broke down their duties and just began to separate from one another. John, the older, seemed to assume things would someday work out, though. He even had plans for Charles to kind of take over uh, because he assumed as the older brother that he would die first. However, surprisingly, Charles did not outlast John and died before him. When he heard the news, he was heading kind of into church, as at least the story went, and while singing one of Charles' hymns, he got to the line, quote, my company is gone in the hymn written by Charles, and he just completely broke down and publicly wept in front of everyone. John Wesley and Charles did not have always the best relationship, and yet they both undoubtedly changed the world, and many of Charles Wesley's hymns are still being sung to this day, and the effect that John Wesley had for good and bad are still being felt for sure. This contentious issue of the almost Christian was something they also struggled back and forth with over understanding and what made somebody 
John believed there were many and was very concerned that there were many who thought they were saved but weren't, like he himself said he was at one point. Listen now as he explains why it is so important to wake up if you're in that situation. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Acts 26, verse 28. And many there are who go thus far. Ever since the Christian religion was in the world, there have been many in every age and nation who were almost persuaded to be Christians. But seeing it avails nothing before God to go only thus far, it highly imports us to consider, first, what is implied in being almost, secondly, what in being altogether a Christian. Now suppose the being almost a Christian is implied first, heathen honesty. No one, I suppose, will make any question of this, especially since by heathen honesty here I mean not that which is recommended in the writings of the philosophers only, but such as the common heathens expected of one another, and many of them actually practiced. By the rules of this they were taught that they ought not to be unjust, not to take away their neighbor's goods, either by robbery or theft, not to oppress the poor, neither to use extortion toward any, not to cheat or overreach either the poor or rich in whatsoever commerce they had with them, to defraud no man of his right, and if it were possible to owe man, no man anything." Again, the common heathen allowed that some regard was to be paid to truth as well as to justice, and accordingly they not only had him in abomination who was forsworn, who called God to witness to a lie, but him also who was known to be a slanderer of his neighbor, who falsely accused any man. And indeed, little better did they esteem willful liars of any sort, accounting them the disgrace of humankind and the pests of society. Yet again, there was a sort of love and assistance which they expected one from another. They expected whatever assistance anyone could give another without prejudice to himself, and this they extended, not only to those little offices of humanity which are performed without any expense or labor, but likewise to the feeding the hungry if they had food to spare, the clothing the naked with their own superfluous raiment, and in general, the giving to any that needed such things as they needed not themselves. Thus far, in the lowest account of it, heathen honesty went, the first thing implied in the being almost a Christian. A second thing implied in the being almost a Christian is the having a form of godliness, of that godliness which is prescribed in the gospel of Christ, the having the outside of a real Christian, Accordingly, the almost Christian does nothing which the gospel forbids. He taketh not the name of God in vain. He blesseth and curseth not. He sweareth not at all, but his communication is yea, yea, nay, nay. He profanes not the day of the Lord, nor suffers it to be profaned even by the stranger that is within his gates. He not only avoids all actual adultery, fornication, and uncleanness, but every word or look that either directly or indirectly tends thereto, nay, and all idle words, abstaining both from all detraction, backbiting, tail-bearing, evil-speaking, 
and from all foolish talk and jesting, a kind of virtue in the heathen moralist's account. Briefly, from all conversation that is not good to the use of edifying, and that consequently grieves the Holy Spirit of God, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. He abstains from wine wherein is excess, from revelings and gluttony. He avoids, as much as in him lies, all strife and contention, continually endeavoring to live peaceably with all men. And if he suffer wrong, he avengeth not himself, neither returns evil for evil. He is no railer, no brawler, no scoffer, either at the faults or infirmities of his neighbor. He does not willingly wrong, hurt, or grieve any man, but in all things acts and speaks by that plain rule, whatsoever thou wouldst not he should do unto thee, that do not thou to another. And in doing good he does not confine himself to cheap and easy offices of kindness, but labors and suffers for the profit of many, that by all means he may help some. In spite of toil or pain, whatsoever his hand findeth to do, he doth it with his might, whether it be for his friends or for his enemies, for the evil or for the good. For being not slothful in this or in any business, as he hath opportunity he doth good, all manner of good, to all men and to their souls, as well as their bodies. He reproves the wicked, instructs the ignorant, confirms the wavering, quickens the good, and comforts the afflicted. He labors to awaken those that sleep, to lead those whom God hath already awakened to the fountain, opened for sin and for uncleanness, that they may wash therein and be clean, and to stir up those who are saved through faith to adorn the gospel of God in all things. He that hath the form of godliness uses also the means of grace, yea, all of them, and at all opportunities, he constantly frequents the house of God, and that not as the manner of some is, who come in the presence of the Most High, either loaded with gold and costly apparel, or in all the gaudy vanity of dress, and either by their unseasonable civilities to each other, or the impertinent gaiety of their behavior, disclaim all pretensions to the form as well as to the power of godliness." Would to God there were none, even among ourselves, who fall under the same condemnation, who come into his house, it may be, gazing about, or with all the signs of the most listless, careless indifference, though sometimes they may seem to use a prayer to God for his blessing on what they are entering upon, who during that awful service are either asleep or reclined in the most convenient posture for it, or as though they supposed God were asleep, talking with one another, or looking round, as utterly void of employment. Neither let them be accused of the form of godliness. No, he who has even this behaves with seriousness and attention in every part of the solemn service. More especially when he approaches the table of the Lord, it is not with a light or careless behavior, but with an air, gesture, and deportment which speaks nothing else but God be merciful to me a sinner. To this, if we add the constant use of family prayer by those who are masters of families, and the setting times apart for private addresses to God with a dearly seriousness of behavior, he who uniformly practices this outward religion has the form of godliness. There needs but one thing more in order to his being almost a Christian, 
and that is sincerity. By sincerity, I mean a real inward principle of religion from whence these outward actions flow, and indeed if we have not this, we have not heathen honesty, no, not so much of it as will answer the demand of a heathen, Epicurean poet. Even this poor wretch in his sober intervals is able to testify, good men avoid sin from the love of virtue, wicked men avoid sin from the fear of punishment. So that if a man only abstains from doing evil in order to avoid punishment, thou shalt not be hanged, saith the pagan, there thou hast thy reward. But even he will not allow such a harmless man as this to be so much as a good heathen. If then any man from the same motive, to avoid punishment, to avoid the loss of his friends or his gain or his reputation, should not only abstain from doing evil, but also do ever so much good, yea, and use all the means of grace, yet we could not with any propriety say, this man is even almost a Christian. If he has no better principle in his heart, he is only a hypocrite altogether. Sincerity, therefore, is necessarily implied in the being almost a Christian, a real design to serve God, a hearty desire to do his will. It is necessarily implied that a man have a sincere view of pleasing God in all things, in all his conversation, in all his actions, in all he does or leaves undone. This design, if any man be almost a Christian, runs through the whole tenor of his life. This is the moving principle, both in his doing good, his abstaining from evil, and his using the ordinances of God. But here it will probably be inquired, is it possible that any man living should go so far as this and nevertheless be only almost a Christian? What more than this can be implied in the being a Christian altogether? I answer first that it is possible to go thus far and yet be but almost a Christian. I learn not only from the oracles of God, but also from the sure testimony of experience. Brethren, great is my boldness toward you in this behalf, and forgive me this wrong if I declare my own folly upon the housetop for yours and the gospel's sake. Suffer me then to speak freely of myself, even as of another man. I am content to be abased, so ye may be exalted, and to be yet more vile for the glory of my Lord. I did go thus far for many years, as many of this place can testify, using diligence to eschew all evil, and to have a conscience void of offense, redeeming the time, buying up every opportunity of doing all good to all men, constantly and carefully using all the public and all the private means of grace, endeavoring after a steady seriousness of behavior at all times and in all places, and God is my record, before whom I stand, doing all this in sincerity, having a real design to serve God, a hearty desire to do his will in all things, to please him who had called me to fight the good fight and to lay hold of eternal life. Yet my own conscience beareth me witness in the Holy Ghost that all this time I was but almost a Christian. If it be inquired, what more than this is implied in the being altogether a Christian, I answer first, the love of God. For thus saith his word, 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Such a love of God is this as engrosses the whole heart, as takes up all the affections, as fills the entire capacity of the soul, and employs the utmost extent of all its faculties. He that thus loves the Lord his God, his spirit continually rejoiceth in God his Savior. He, his delight is in the Lord, his Lord, and his all, to whom in everything he giveth thanks. And his desire is unto God, and to the remembrance of his name. His heart is ever crying out, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Indeed, what can he desire besides God? Not the world, or the things of the world. For he is crucified to the world, and the world crucified to him. He is crucified to the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, and the pride of life. Yea, he is dead to pride of every kind, for love is not puffed up. But he that dwelling in love dwelleth in God, and God in him, is less than nothing in his own eyes. The second thing implied in the being altogether a Christian is the love of our neighbor. For thus said our Lord in the following words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If any man asks who is my neighbor, we reply, Every man in the world, every child of his who is the father of the spirits of all flesh. Nor may we in any wise accept our enemies, or the enemies of God and their own souls. But every Christian loveth these also as himself, yea, as Christ loved us. He that would more fully understand what manner of love this is may consider St. Paul's description of it. It is long-suffering and kind. It envieth not. It is not rash or hasty in judging. It is not puffed up. But maketh him that loves the least the servant of all. Love doth not behave itself unseemly, but becometh all things to all men. She seeketh not her own, but only the good of others, that they may be saved. Love is not provoked. It casteth out wrath, which he who hath in wanting in love. It thinketh no evil. It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It covereth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. There is yet one more thing that may be separately considered, though it cannot actually be separate from the preceding, which is implied in the being altogether a Christian, and that is the ground of all, even faith. Very excellent things are spoken of this throughout the oracles of God. Everyone, saith the beloved disciple, that believeth is born of God. To as many as received him gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Yea, our Lord himself declares, He that believeth in the Son hath everlasting life, and cometh not into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. But here let no man deceive his own soul. It is diligently to be noted, the faith with which bringeth not forth repentance and love, and all good works, is not that right living faith which is here spoken of, but a dead and devilish one. For even the devils believe that Christ was born of a virgin, 
that he wrought all kinds of miracles, declaring himself very God, that for our sakes he suffered a most painful death, to redeem us from death everlasting, that he rose again the third day, that he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of the Father, and at the end of the world shall come again to judge both the quick and the dead. These articles of our faith the devils believe, and so they believe all that is written in the Old and New Testament. And yet for all this faith, they are but devils. They remain still in their damnable estate, lacking the very true Christian faith. The right and true Christian faith is, to go on in the words of our own church, not only to believe that Holy Scripture and the articles of our faith are true, but also to have a sure trust and confidence to be saved from ever dam- everlasting damnation by Christ. It is a sure trust and confidence, which a man hath in God, that by the merits of Christ his sins are forgiven, and he reconciled to the favor of God, whereof doth a follower whereof doth follow a loving heart to obey his commandments. Now whosoever hath this faith which purifies the heart by the power of God who dwelleth therein, from pride, anger, desire, from all unrighteousness, from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, which fills it with love stronger than death, both to God and to all mankind, love that doth the works of God, glorying to spend and to be spent for all men, and that endureth with joy not only the reproach of Christ, the being mocked, despised, and hated of all men, but whatsoever the wisdom of God permits the malice of men or devils to inflict, whosoever has this faith, thus working by love, is not almost only, but altogether a Christian. But who are the living witnesses of these things? I beseech you, brethren, as in the presence of that God before whom hell and destruction are without a covering, how much more the hearts of the children of men, that each of you would ask his own heart, Am I of that number? Do I so far practice justice, mercy, and truth, as even the rules of heathen honesty require? If so, have I the very outside of a Christian, the form of godliness? Do I abstain from evil, from whatsoever is forbidden in the written word of God? Do I, whatever good my hand findeth to do, do it with my might? Do I seriously use all the ordinances of God at all opportunities? And is all this done with a sincere design and desire to please God in all things? Are not many of you conscious that you never came thus far? That you have not been even almost a Christian? That you have not come up to the standard of heathen honesty? At least, not to the form of Christian godliness? Much less hath God seen sincerity in you, a real design of pleasing him in all things. You never so much as intended to devote all your words and works, your business, studies, diversions, to his glory. You never even designed or desired that whatsoever you did should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, and as such should be a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Christ. But supposing you had... Do good designs and good desires make a Christian? By no means, unless they are brought to good effect. Hell is paved, saith one, with good intentions. The great question of all, then, still remains. 
Is the love of God shed abroad in your heart? Can you cry out, my God and my all? Do you desire nothing but him? Are you happy in God? Is he your glory, your delight, your crown of rejoicing? And this is the commandment written in your heart, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Do you then love your neighbor as yourself? Do you love every man, even your enemies, even the enemies of God, as your own soul, as Christ loved you? Yea, dost thou believe that Christ loved thee and gave himself for thee? Hast thou faith in his blood? Believest thou the Lamb of God hath taken away thy sins and cast them as a stone into the depths of the sea? That he hath blotted out the handwriting that was against thee, taking it out of the way, nailing it to his cross? Hast thou indeed redemption through his blood? even the remission of thy sins. And doth his spirit bear witness to thy spirit that thou art a child of God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who now standeth in the midst of us, knoweth that if any man die without this faith and this love, good it were for him that he had never been born. Awake then thou that sleepest and call upon thy God, Call in the day when he may be found. Let him not rest till he make his goodness to pass before thee, till he proclaim unto thee the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Let no man persuade thee by vain words to rest short of this prize of thy high calling. But cry unto him, day and night, who while we were without strength, died for the ungodly, until thou knowest in whom thou hast believed, and canst say, My Lord and my God. Remember always to pray and not to faint, till thou also canst lift up thy hand unto heaven, and declare to him that liveth forever and ever, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. May we all thus experience what it is to be not almost only, but altogether Christians, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus, knowing we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God and having the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost given unto us. Hey there, fellow Revived Thoughts listeners. My name is Jason Stanley. And when Joel and Troy gave out that call recently to have more people read sermons, I was very excited. I already had a sermon I wanted to share. It was this sermon, The Almost Christian by John Wesley. I've read it several times. Um, it is one of my favorite sermons throughout history. And I, I wanted to share a few thoughts about this sermon as well. I asked Joel and Troy if I could do that, and they allowed me a brief recording. Um, and I jumped at it because I know that I misunderstood this sermon. And there are a lot of sermons similar to it that I think we could misunderstand if we're not careful. 
when I first heard this sermon, I heard all of the things that John Wesley says are needed to make someone almost a Christian. And I got very convicted because I don't know about you, but I don't live up to that bar. And then you think about the life that John Wesley lived, the number of works of mercy that he performed. He visited jails. He worked with the poor. He worked with the hungry, just the incredible number of things he did and the discipline that he lived his life through. And it's really easy to think that you can never measure up to that bar. And so then you hear this sermon and you think, well, I can't even be almost a Christian. But I think it's very important to keep in mind one of the last things that John Wesley says. Because one of the last things John Wesley talks about is that being altogether a Christian means that the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. So John Wesley spends this entire sermon talking about all of these works But the thing that makes you altogether a Christian isn't a work that you do. It's a work that God has to do in your heart. And it's very important to note, I don't think that John Wesley is talking about the moment that you are saved. John Wesley is very clear in other sermons of his, we are saved by grace through faith. But John Wesley struggled a lot in his life with balancing being saved by grace and the call that scripture has for those of us who are saved to demonstrate our faith through works. So in this sermon, in other parts earlier in his life, and there are a number of people who study John Wesley today who would say that this uh, moment of having God's love shed abroad in your heart is a salvation moment. And John Wesley points to that moment in his life being his experience at Aldersgate, where he says his heart was strangely warmed. But John Wesley was already a a pastor at this point, and he did believe that Jesus had died for his sins at this point. Um, He did most of his good works before this, as well as continuing them after. I think that what this is, is this is God further transforming him in a work that a lot of people who follow after Wesley would call sanctification. God is helping cleanse him and make him more complete through pouring his love into his heart. And that, I think, is what John Wesley wants to get through to us in this message. Just how transforming the love of God is for us. And if you look at this list and you get intimidated, you look at this list and you think there's no way you can live up to that. The answer for John Wesley is not to just try harder. It is to move toward an experience of God's love being poured out into your heart. And I hope this sermon helps to draw you into one of those experiences today. Thank 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Jason Stanley, a former United Methodist pastor who earned a bachelor's degree in Christian ministries from Indiana Wesleyan University and a master's of theological studies from Duke Divinity School. As we mentioned at the top of this episode, right now I am hearing lots of great things about Martyrs Missionaries. We love Martyrs Missionaries. We want to keep hearing great things about Martyrs Missionaries, but we also want to hear from you guys if you are listening to Revive Thoughts. So please uh, send us some feedback. Tell us how we're doing. Uh, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or something like that so that we can also feel like we're at the party. This is Troy and Jill, and this is Revive Thoughts. Revive Thoughts.